money for each of you. This is our 23rd and final sermon in the book of Ruth. And you've got to understand that I've been living in the book of Ruth for the last couple of years, and it's become like a dear friend to me, and leaving it behind is really hard. There are so many more things that I would love to be able to do with this book, but we also have some great days ahead studying the Psalms as well. So if you have your Bible, would you take it, please, and let's go over to the book of Ruth, and we're interested in Ruth chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, the final words of the book of Ruth as written by Samuel, the prophet. And um, verse 16 says, then Naomi took the child and put him on her bosom and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, and Hezron became the father of Ram, and Ram became the father of Amemadad, and Amemadad became the father of Nashon, and Nashon became the father of Salma, and Solomon became the father of Boaz, and Boaz became the father of Obed, and Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David. You say, now, how are you going to preach a genealogy? Where you're going to hear in a moment. You've got to understand that God's people have always, always been bigger pictured people. I've mentioned that before in our series. It's very easy to get lost in the details of life and miss the working of God on the whole. You miss the forest for the trees would be our English expression. And that's especially true when you're engaged with the narrative of the book of Ruth. The final seven verses of Ruth are a reminder that you need to step back, gain a bigger picture in order to grasp God's overall redemptive plan. And what I'm saying is that when you study the book of Ruth, you can become so bogged down in the details of the storyline that you miss the general understanding of what God is doing in Israel's redemptive history. Your myopic focus on those details of the story causes you to miss the most important aspects of that story. Big pictured thinkers frequently consider the long-term effects of events while detailed-oriented thinkers focus on short-term priorities. What I'm saying is that it's easy to get lost in the tragedy of Ruth and Naomi and then to get caught up in the unexpected blessing of Boaz and his relationship to Naomi and Ruth that you end up missing the overarching purposes of God. What am I talking about? What is this uh, bigger picture that we're talking about here? Well, ever since sin came into the world, God's overall purpose has been the redemption of his people. 
It starts in Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to go back there for a moment. So take your Bible. Let's go back to Genesis 3. And we're interested in verse 15. Where God says to the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and she shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, is what is called the Proto-Evangelicum, which is the first gospel. When God says to the serpent, he's going to put this enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This sets up, listen, a classic struggle that had been going on between God and Satan long before creation that goes back to the very beginning. The seed of the woman with the bruise will be bruised by the actions of Satan, but the woman's seed will fight back. The fact that this is only, the only time in scripture where a woman is spoken of as having a seed which points to something very unique. It's always in scripture, the man who has the seed, but not here. Here we have the first reference to the virgin birth and the coming of the Messiah right in Genesis 3.15. Therefore, it is known as the Proto-Evangelicum because it is the first gospel. It proclaims that God's people will finally triumph over the serpent. The phrase, the seed of the woman, is a corporate noun indicating a collective human victory. Eve's seed, Jesus Christ, would deliver the final blow. Now, this is the reason why God selected and called later on Abram out of Haran to go to Canaan. And in Genesis 12 and verse 7, then he promised him, To your seed, I will give this land. It is the seed of Abraham later, and as he was referred to, including Isaac and his descendants in Genesis 21 and verse 12. It says that through Isaac, your seed shall be named. And then Jacob has a dream in Genesis 28, 14, and your seed will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and and I and your and in your seed all all families of the earth shall be blessed and it was the relationship that Yahweh then had with his people that provided this perpetual establishment for the seed of Israel In Psalm 89 and verse 4, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne from generation to generation. The early church viewed this as a reference to Jesus Christ. Peter says in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 32, he said, men, brothers... I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David 
that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had shown to him with an oath to, or sworn to him, I should say, with an oath to set up one of the fruit of his body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And he was neither forsaken to Hades, Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. That was Peter's address on the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Paul later on writes in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the seed of David, according to my gospel. The child born to Boaz and Ruth now is a critical part of that promised seed. He's a vital link in God's redemptive plan. That's the bigger picture, and the full story is essential to your understanding of salvation. This is why God has chosen to bless all the families of the earth through Abram's seed. This is also the reason that Ruth is one of only a few named women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. It is a genealogy that begins by mentioning the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, which shows you how important this historic link is to the heritage of Jesus Christ himself. Now, what I've done here is I've divided our text into two main points. And the first one has to do with a grandmother's love of devotion in verses 16 and 17. And then the second part is the generational line of David in verses 18 through 22. So let's begin by taking a look at verse 16. Verse 16 has to do with the grandmother's devotion. The grandmother's devotion. Um, if I can get that to advance a little bit. The grandmother's love of devotion here, you can see in verse 16. Once this moves here, we'll see if we can get that going. You understand that to Naomi, the birth of her very first grandchild was a highlight of her life. She dearly loved her grandson, and she was willing to do everything she could to sacrifice for him. It didn't matter to her that her grandson was not a direct descendant from her as a biological son. He was a part of her family through Boaz as a kinsman redeemer, and that was going to be sufficient for her. That was going to be sufficient for her. This was her grandson, and she wanted to do everything she could to provide, in this particular sense, a comfortable and safe family life for him to grow. She knew her grandson was a direct result of the very blessings of God that comes from obeying Yahweh despite all of the extreme adversity. So what does she do? Naomi ends up nursing the boy in verse 16. She ends up nursing the boy. 
Um, she, first of all, she puts him on her bosom. Now, the New American Standard Bible translates that laid him on her lap, but the Legacy Standard Bible gives you a more accurate picture of it. She put him on her bosom. That is literally the most literal translation you can have of those words. So everyone who has had children understands this picture. Even today, when a child is born, it is immediately laid on the mother's bosom where the child can feel the warmth of her body and hear her heart beating. So it's a very comfortable feeling for a child as well as for the mother as well when this occurs. Um, So here the process is the same, but the picture is different. It's not Ruth who cuddles the child, it's his grandmother, Naomi. So Ruth has probably already spent time with her son. Um, And now in love for Naomi, she surrenders her son over to Naomi, and Naomi treats him like her own son. Now, we do know from the Talmud that a woman who has just given birth um, has the status of a sick person in mortal danger. Several references of that. The new mother has to be given time to heal. This is especially true if it's a very difficult birth. And if that is true of Ruth and her birth, then... It stands to reason why Naomi immediately takes over cuddling the child. And this is done until Ruth is healed and can get back on her feet. So for a temporary time, Naomi acts like a surrogate mother for Ruth's son. A surrogate mother for Ruth's son. This also shows how much love and trust was shared between Ruth and her mother-in-law. Ruth allowed her to care for her baby as she recovered from the arduous and painful task of giving birth. So not only does she put him on her bosom, but she becomes, in the latter part of verse 16, his nursemaid. Now, The word that's used for nurse here does not mean that Naomi literally took up breastfeeding of the child. It's a general term, meaning um, a woman who is the custodian of a child. Um, Naomi became, in a sense, the main babysitter, we would say today. She was the guardian, the keeper, the temporary protector of the child in his infancy, In fact, archaeological evidence reveals that childbirth was a very risky event back in ancient times. In some areas, it's believed, according to archaeology, that infant mortality rate was about 50% after birth. And because giving birth was a very difficult and arduous process on the mother, the female life expectancy of the mother was... um, of most mothers were around 30 years of age. 
So it was not unusual for women to act as nursemaids for women who had given birth. Someone had to watch a child around the clock. Often the mother would trade off 12-hour shifts with the nursemaid so that the baby would survive those early months of life. While the father was out trying to put food on the table, the women took care of the infants and each other. So Naomi turns out to be a very devoted grandmother and mother-in-law as well. She was someone that Ruth trusted implicitly. That's the reason why she's able to surrender her young boy over to, to Ruth or to Naomi. Now look at verse 17. The neighbors name the boy. Does that strike you as odd? The verse may seem strange to you. Have you ever heard of a family that allowed the neighbor women to name the baby? Well, neither have I. So what is going on in verse 17? Well, first of all, the women of Bethlehem name Ruth's son. This is the only time in the Old Testament where a child had been named by someone other than their immediate family. Only time in the entire Old Testament. So something unusual and special is going on through their action. The normal way that a child was named in ancient Israel was through the child's mother. In fact, it was the act of naming a child that bestowed upon an Israelite woman her new identity as a mother, and she would assume her new role and status in society now as a mother. But in this case, Ruth does not name her son, and neither does Naomi. I think the events in in Naomi's life made this an unusual but very meaningful event. This really takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 2. Presumably, Naomi named her two sons Malone and Chilion. And we already discussed earlier in our series what those two names mean. Malone meant sickly. Chilion meant weakly. Why did she name her two sons sick and weakly? All right. She wasn't a very good naming mother. Well, because you remember, and we studied this very carefully. They were born during a great famine in the land, and the babies were extremely malnourished. The boys grew up into adulthood, but eventually die young. They presumably had a lot of health problems because of the way in which they were malnourished. Everyone, every true Israelite knew at that time that the famine was due to God's judgment upon their lives for their wickedness. After the death of her husband and two sons, Naomi, along with Ruth, come returned to Bethlehem, and she no longer wishes to be called Naomi, which the, her name actually meant sweet or pleasant, but now she wants to be named Mara Bitter. These same women in Bethlehem witnessed the awful bitterness of Naomi in chapter 1 and verse 19. And they wonder out loud, is is this really Naomi? Is this really Naomi? Now, these same women 
see how Yahweh has poured out his goodness upon her, and they acknowledge that to her. In fact, you can see that. Let's go back up to verse 14, where these same women say, behold, whoops, um, I need to go back to Ruth here. Ruth chapter 4 and verse um, 14, where it says, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is Yahweh, who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer today, and may his name be proclaimed in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of your soul and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So this is what they say after the giving of birth there in Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. They are overwhelmed with the goodness of Yahweh. And they agree upon a name for this infant boy. They agree upon a name for this infant boy. The name Obed then means servant worshiper. The name Obed means servant worshiper. This young boy represents a new generation of Israelites who no longer are struggling under a famine, a new generation that will worship Yahweh, turning aside from the worship of the idols of Canaan and that brought on the famine in the first place. They say a son has been born to Naomi there in verse 17. And the word son here is a general term that can mean descendant or grandson. So the young boy represents a new beginning not just for Boaz and Ruth, but for everyone in Bethlehem. And his name reflects who he is to become, the servant worshiper. From him will come a kingly line for Israel. He will have a son by the name of Jesse, and Jesse will have a son by the name of David, the future king of Israel, Boaz and Ruth, are the great-grandparents of King David. Wow, that's just remarkable. They are the great-grandparents of King David. So this brings us then to verses 18 through 22, which is a general, uh, the generational line of David. It is the, the family line of Perez that demonstrates the big picture of God's providential care for his people. This is one of the reasons why Samuel chooses at the end of the book of Ruth to put in this generational genealogy. All the seeming arbitrary events of Ruth, the famine, the trip to Moab, the marriages of Malone and Chilion, the deaths of Elimelech and his sons, returning to Bethlehem, the bitterness of Naomi, the harvest time of barley, the danger for Ruth the Moabitess in the fields, the harvesting in Boaz's fields, sleeping at his feet, purchasing land, etc. All of that, all of that reveals the sovereign unfolding of Yahweh's plan to bless them and eventually bless all the people through their seed. This short genealogy spans nine centuries beginning with Perez, 
who lived approximately 1,885 B.C. to the time of David around 1,040 B.C. So the first five listed in the genealogy lived during the time of the patriarchs to the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. The time covered in the last five from Salmon to David covers Joshua's lifetime, the 450 years of the judges up to the time of the monarchy. And the purpose of the timeline is not to present a strict genealogy, but to show a line of succession in a compressed format of the Davidic kingship. You've got to remember that often the Hebrew term for son just simply meant descendant, not just always the immediate progeny. So let's take a look briefly at these 10 generations here, which has to do with the lineage of the kingship in verse 18. The first that's mentioned is Perez. His name means bursting forth or breach. So his name is probably a reference to the way that he was born. This child was born breach. In Genesis chapter 38 and verse 29, he's born to Judah through Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. His real prominence comes from the fact that he was an ancestor of David. Perez also was the father of Herzon and Halmut. And he was the patriarch of the line of the Pezerites. The statement back made in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 12 is a reference to Genesis 38. Both Ruth and the Genesis 38 stories refer to the institution of Leverite marriage, and they stress the twofold blessing of great prosperity and property made by God to Abraham. That's in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. Perez's descendants settled in and around the city of Bethlehem, and once the Jews were finally in the land of Canaan, then that became their inheritance, that part of the land. So that's one of the main reasons why this lineage begins with Perez. His descendant then was Hezron, the second man on the list. You can see this in verse 18, as well as Genesis 46 and verse 12. He's the son of Perez, and his name means the dart of joy, or sometimes it can mean the division of a song. He is most known for being the founder of the Judaite family that settled in Bethlehem and then became known as the clan or the tribe of Judah. The third on this list, his descendant is Ram. Again, listed in verse 18 and uh, 1 Quran, uh, Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 9. 
So he is, um, he is the son of, of Herzon. His name means high, as in elevated, which may speak to the fact that he was probably unusually tall. We do not know very much about him other than the fact that he is in the genealogies of David and Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Ram's descendant was a man by the name of Amimadad. You can see that in verse 18 as well. Also, you can cross-reference that with Exodus chapter 6 and verse 23. He's a descendant of Ram. His name means, my kinsmen are noble. My kinsmen are noble. Amimadad. You don't find very many mothers naming their kid Amimadad nowadays. It's actually a pretty good name. My kinsmen are noble. He was the father-in-law of Aaron, who worked alongside of Moses, especially during the wilderness wanderings. So it does seem like his children became some kind of royalty in Israel. They were a powerful family, and the tradition of a king, kingly line may have started in his generation and with his descendants after him. Then look at verse 19. His descendant then, Amimadad's descendant, is Nashan. Nashan was leader in Israel during the time of the Exodus. We can see this in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 7, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 7 and verse 12 of Numbers so he was the head of the house of Judah. And remember that Judah was the fourth son of Jacob by Leah, according to Genesis 29, 35. And he took a leading role among his brothers early in life. Um, Genesis chapter 37, verses 26 and 27. So it was Judah who was promised leadership, tribal stability, and ultimately the ultimate kingship through David with the Messiah. In fact, I want you to see this. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, we're interested in verse 8. This is where Jacob is blessing his sons. And in verse 8, it says, Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He wishes he washes the garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dark from wine and his teeth white from milk. So this is part of the blessing you can see that Jacob gives to his son, in this particular case. Um, and Nashon now becomes the ultimate descendants. 
So with Nashon, this brings us to the end then of the patriarchal period. It brings us to the end of the patriarchal period. This, verse 19, we come to Salmon. He was the husband of Rahab the harlot. We know that from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. This was during the time when Joshua and Israel began to possess the land of Canaan. And since Solomon and Rahab lived approximately 1425 to 1350 BC, it shows that some generations were purposely omitted between Solomon and Boaz. So these were selective omissions, simply skipped for brevity, while still showing a reliable kingly lineage. Then later on, Solomon, his descendant, then becomes Boaz. You can see that in verse 21. He is a descendant of Solomon, um, our renowned kinsman redeemer. His lifespan between somewhere 1160 to 1090 B.C. That's the best that we can say about when he actually lived, and that obviously was the time that the events of Ruth actually unfolded. His care, as well as his courage that we've talked a lot about, in stepping up in order to help Naomi and Ruth, has him standing head and shoulders above all the other men of his day. He was willing to put his life and reputation on the line in order to marry a Moabite woman and care for her forlorn forlorn mother-in-law, Naomi. So even the people of Bethlehem, even though they would have never done what Boaz did, they saw Boaz was a very unique man that honored him with, and honored him with many blessings. They really appreciated him from a distance. And, and they showered many blessings upon him, even though they don't think that they would ever do what he did. And then, of course, that brings us in verse 21 to Obed. Yahweh now blessed the union of Ruth and Boaz with a son, Obed. His name, he was Yahweh's servant worshiper. Knowing that both his father and his mother were hard workers, Obed grew up in a home learning how to care for others and provide for a family. Then he was blessed with a son. There in verse 22, Jesse. You can see a cross-reference to Jesse in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, or chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. The meaning of his name is very uncertain. It could mean the idea of existence or to be extant. Uh, Jesse was the father of seven sons and two daughters. The seventh son was David. And it's interesting that the prophet Isaiah mentions him as the ancestor of the future messianic king. And in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And then a few verses later, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10, it says, Then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the expression, the root of Jesse, to identify 
Jesus with the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. You can see that in Romans chapter 15 and verse 12. King David's father plays a pivotal role in the Messianic prophecy and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then finally, this 10th descendant that's mentioned is David. There in verse 22, and you can cross-reference this with 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 15. This brings us to the most famous king of ancient Israel, King David. Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson. And it's fitting, the final word in the book of Ruth is the name of David. All along, God has been working at keeping his promises and his covenants made that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, now David. So there are latent messianic implications that extend way beyond David it's even mentioned in the Davidic covenant. So in order to see the connection, take your Bible and go over to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 1. This is where David plans on building a temple for the, for the Lord, for Yahweh, In verse 1, it says, Now it happened when the king inhabited his house, and Yahweh had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I inhabited a house of cedar, but the ark of God inhabits tent curtains. So Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is on your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Now it happened in the same night that the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh... Are you the one who would build me a house to inhabit? For I have not inhabited a house since the day that I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been going about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone about with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded the shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So now, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be a leader over my people Israel. And I have been with you whenever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of a great men who are on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, and they will dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity 
I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all the words and according to all the visions, so Nathan spoke to David. Now you get the Davidic covenant. Now you see how closely this was tied together with David himself. So what we see in David's reign is a small preview of a greater reality of the reign of Jesus Christ, which is then talked about in Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20. We studied that earlier as well. If everything in the Old Testament is Christotelic, constantly pointing to Christ, if everything in the Old Testament are huge signs pointing to Christ, then the book of Ruth is one of the largest signs with Boaz as a type of Christ, and his great-grandson becomes another type of Christ as he reigns in majestic royalty, having vanquished the enemies of God's people. So in conclusion, what final lessons can we take away from the book of Ruth? Wow, it finally worked. All right, what can we do? So um, let me see if I can get to the final lessons here in terms of um, uh, what we want to learn. Number one is this. God will judge the sinfulness of his people. One of the lessons we draw away from Ruth, a severe famine in Israel during the time of the judges really precipitated the events of Elimelech and Naomi temporarily sojourning, moving their family to Moab. This is the primary reason that Naomi's two sons were born weak and sickly, Sometimes even righteous people will suffer alongside the unrighteous. You can see this in the corporate community of Israel. As Proverbs 13, 15 says, but the way of the treacherous is hard or unrelenting. And then later in Proverbs 13, 21, evil pursues sinners. So God will judge the sinfulness of his people. Secondly, God's people will suffer severe loss in this wicked world. they will suffer severe loss in this wicked world. You and I will not be exempt from the trials of this life. Naomi suffered the loss of her husband and two sons. Ruth suffered the loss of Malone, her husband. When your heart is tied to the things of this world, you become angry and bitter towards God, much like Naomi did. As Jeremiah recalls, while watching his beloved Jerusalem burn, He says, for the Lord will not reject forever. If he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men. Lamentations 3, verses 31 through 33. Thirdly, God's purposes and plans will always prevail. The fingerprints of God's providence is all over the book of Ruth. You've got to understand Where you may see short-term loss, he sees long-term gain. His purposes and his plans are always laser-focused on his glory and your ultimate good. You would not know the power and the purposes of God without the hardships of life. These hardships purify your walk. They force you to ask yourself the hard question, how much do I really 
trust what God is doing in my life. Ruth trusted Yahweh, putting her life in his hands. She worked the barley fields around Bethlehem, exposing herself to great harm and abuse as a Moabite because she trusted Israel's God. Trusting the Lord always results in boldness and courage. Fourth, God will often provide encouragement and help from unlikely people. Who would have thought that a Moabite daughter-in-law would be the central person Yahweh would use to be of help that Naomi needed? Who would have thought that any man in Judah would step forth to marry this Moabitess and redeem Naomi's property? The people of Bethlehem despise the Moabites, and yet Boaz steps forward to be the real kinsman redeemer. And you know what? There are people in your life that God will use, and he will surprise you as to who they are that will be of help to you. Number five, God's plan of redemption is always at work. It should be obvious to you by now that God's plan through the events of the book of Ruth was far greater than saving two destitute women. The bigger picture is that God was using these events to foreshadow a much greater messianic reality. Boaz and Ruth are a key link in the chain of a king, seen first in David, but later on in the eternal king of the ages, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth's name means friendship. Her friendship with her mother-in-law, Naomi, sets the stage for all the wonderful change of events, all this was by God's providential design. Now, let's come to some conclusions here. In order to bring our entire series in the book of Ruth, entitled Unexpected Redemptive Providence, to a close, I want to highlight seven observations made by John MacArthur, our pastor, in the book, the MacArthur Bible Handbook. Our pastor writes this, first of all. He says, at least seven major theological themes emerge in Ruth. The first one is that Ruth the Moabitess illustrates that God's redemptive plan extended beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. The second is that Ruth demonstrates that women are co-heirs with men of God's salvation grace. The third, Ruth portrays the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. The fourth, Ruth describes God's sovereign and providential care of seemingly unimportant people at apparently insignificant times, which later proved to be monumentally crucial to accomplishing God's will. The fifth, Ruth, along with Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, stand in Christ's genealogy. Wow. Stands in Christ's genealogy. The sixth, Boaz, as a type of Christ, becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And finally, the seventh, is that David's right, and thus Christ's right, to the throne of Israel is traced back to Judah. We can see this through the book of Ruth. 
Oh, how mistaken many are who consider the book of Ruth a less than significant book in the Old Testament. It is a vital element for the enrichment of a weary soul as it points to Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the study that we have had throughout the book of Ruth. It has been wonderful to be able to see your sovereignty at work, which, by the way, was not just something that happened in ancient times. It is something that is still going on even to this day in the details of our lives as well. We may suffer difficulties, loss, and tragedy, but at the same time, Father, your purposes are going forward, and we are part of those good purposes, and we trust you much the same way that Ruth and then later Naomi and also Boaz did. We trust you with the details of our life. We're so grateful for the book of Ruth, and we pray, Father, that it will stand as a monumental help to us, especially when we face the difficulties of life on a day-to-day basis. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.